Hi, you're listening to the News Roundup, all things impacting global supply chains this week. I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Britain's annual inflation hit 9.1%. Fuel prices have increased by nearly 33% year-on-year. Britain has the highest inflation rate among G7 countries. Interest rates in the United Kingdom have risen by a quarter of a percent to 1.25%. Costs up, strikes looming, strikes in progress. Workers, of course, pushing for pay rises as inflation bites. Energy is the biggest cost. Energy and fuel prices are rising at the fastest rate for 40 years. As energy prices rise, it threatens to be one of the biggest energy crises since the 1973 oil crisis. And again, there was an energy price increase in 1979 also. After both of those particular events, there was quite a reform of the energy system. Maybe this is an obstacle for the immediate time, but maybe it's an opportunity to reconfigure and redesign energy supplies for most Western economies. It's an opportunity to move towards zero carbon. Question is, will policymakers take the initiative? It was a heat wave in Spain rather than the freeze in Germany in the winter that drove energy prices higher in mid-June. At this time, Nord Stream's pipeline was pumping out lower volumes and prices were increased by 50%. Germany and other European states are expecting further cuts from Russian gas and oil supplies. Energy prices are the biggest contributor to inflation, closely followed by fuel prices. Those two things together are really pushing up inflation. And alongside those, we have the input costs for manufacturing and food prices, which are both contributors to this inflationary growth. Disruptions to grain from Ukraine and from Russia, and also energy prices rocketing, means that input costs for manufacturing industry have risen substantially. And so too have transport and distribution costs. It's nearly 10 years ago since the British government signed a deal with EDF Energy for Hinkley Point C, and that was supposed to produce nuclear energy at £92 per megawatt hour. And around that time, wind-powered energy was coming in £125 per megawatt hour. But what's happened since is there have been delays in completing the contract for Hinkley Point, and the cost per hour, or the economics of having Hinkley versus wind power has shifted. It's now around £50 an hour for a megawatt of energy from wind power. It's always difficult to predict how the economics of energy are going to shift, of course. But the key to a successful energy strategy is to diversify and spread the risk. And so if government policymakers do that, that's the best they could do. Hinkley Point C is currently around 10 billion over budget. The UK government is planning to build more small nuclear power stations to build up energy capacity. The problem is that these take about five, six years to come on stream. So no respite from the energy crisis immediately from that source. But medium to longer term, there needs to be a workable plan. 
that delivers energy at lower cost and mitigates any risk. This week, Lord Frost, the Brexit trade negotiator for both Theresa May's government and Boris Johnson's government in the United Kingdom, said that Brexit was good for the economy. That's not what he said six years ago, just before the vote on Brexit, when he said we'd likely lose 4% per annum of the economy. One can't help but think this is a political statement rather than an economic statement. Most commentators are beginning to say that Brexit is responsible for increasing costs and it means that the United Kingdom is likely to be slower in growth and, of course, it's slower to pull itself out of any economic turmoil. One of the most interesting things I read in The Economist this week was about grain. And it was to do with who eats grain. Where does it go? And you might be surprised to know, because certainly I was, that about 10% of grain goes into pork production, 12% into poultry, 3% into beef, 22% into eggs, and 40% into whole milk. So it goes as animal feed in the main, to produce other food products. And that's interesting, isn't it? It was confirmed again this week that Russia is China's biggest oil provider. Russia is providing 2 million barrels a day to China, which is more than Saudi Arabia. Another thing that caught my eye this week was the decision by Kellogg to split their business into three publicly traded companies, focusing on cereals, snacks and plant-based food. Apparently, growth in the cereals division has stalled. I suppose that's partly due to what's happening in the rest of the world. Now, some of you listening may remember the Phillips curve, which looked at the relationship between inflation and employment, or unemployment mainly. And I'm just wondering, as we enter a time when inflation is wreaking havoc again in most economies, will it be the case that there'll be a degree of correlation between food price inflation, employment, and perhaps we could add energy inflation into the mix, and fuel inflation, and unrest in terms of maybe union activities and people wanting to redistribute the cake. Because certainly wages are going to come under severe pressure in many economies. So that would be an interesting study to uh, look at, wouldn't it, really? It was reported by Freight Waves this week that Hans Thalbar, Google's Cloud Managing Director for Global Supply Chain, Logistics and Transportation, said that he wanted Google to focus attention on leveraging its expertise in that area to become the dominant player in supply chain cloud solutions. He said that the ongoing supply chain disruptions over the past couple of years have really focused attention on becoming a business that can offer solutions to the industry. Now, they're pretty well placed in Google, aren't they, to uh, to do this. They have the technologies, they have the data scientists, and expertise that they've learned from the search engine businesses would put them in really good step. So at the moment, Amazon 
have quite a lead here that uh, looks like Google will be uh, building their expertise and driving hard to get more market share in that cloud technology for supply chains. Now, you may remember a couple of months back, I had a special edition on supply chain skills and careers, and there were a few courses that were highlighted on that particular program. And I heard news this week on one of those courses, which is the MSc in Supply Chain and Logistics at the University of Southampton Business School. And they let me know that uh, they've been accredited by the CILT, Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport, and the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply, which is uh, SIPS in the United Kingdom. So those courses have been uh, accredited. So for anyone wishing to apply, take a look at that uh, Southampton University Business School and have a look at the courses that they have on offer. And you'll remember that uh, Regina Fry was the person to contact. She's the course leader for that program. So get in touch if you're interested. In the United States this week, there's progress on the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. And the industry groups seem to think that this will reduce shipping costs and empower the Federal Maritime Commission to crack down on unscrupulous practices in ocean shipping. The House voted 369 to 42 to send the bill to President Biden's desk, and he's expected to sign the measure, according to the Agriculture Transportation Coalition. So everyone seems to think this is a good move. It was reported this week that shipping costs are soaring mainly from the situation with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And tanker rates have rocketed. These are the rates for carrying gasoline and diesel and any liquid items. It was reported that one particular route in Asia, shippers are now earning around about $50,000 a day transporting products from South Korea to the distribution hub in Singapore compared to $98 a day prior to the war. That's what I call inflation. Price of crude oil is still around $123 a barrel, but at the four courts, fuel prices are rising. In the United Kingdom, petrol is around about 189 pence a litre. The Food and Drug Administration in the United States is cracking down on food producers with newer and tougher requirements for product safety and traceability. The Food Safety Modernization Act, FSMA, came into effect back in 2011, and that laid out a series of steps to prevent contamination of food at all points along a supply chain. Now they're proposing to implement additional record-keeping and reporting requirements, and this is applicable to people who manufacture, process, pack, and whole foods. It's for the food traceability list, the FTL. They're mainly concerned with those foods that have the highest risk to consumers based on criteria such as frequency of outbreaks, severity of illness, likelihoods of contamination, and potential of pathogen growth. They hope to introduce a new era of smarter food safety. Penalties for non-compliance with The legislation could amount to substantial fines, even jail time. So food producers and retailers need to begin to prepare right now. 
70% of the food industry in the United States has already adopted the standards for global location numbering. And that's a standard that uh, increases the visibility along the supply chain. So if it keeps things safe, that's a good move. When we think of cold chain supply, we often think about frozen foods and that sort of thing. We very seldom think about the farmer industry transporting drugs such as the COVID vaccination drugs that have to be at cold temperatures. And there's lots of other drugs in that category too. But apparently the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, loses about $35 billion annually because of failures in temperature-controlled logistics. And the sad part of this is they're almost all entirely preventable. So there's a call to be proactive, making the cold chains more digital and agile. Cold chains, of course, are complex supply chains, and the transportation hubs require equipment to handle and store those cold chain goods. So visibility in the cold chain would make it a much more effective delivery process, keeping track of those cold chain items and preventing deterioration of the farmer goods would substantially improve the situation. Research by Accenture found that companies which had greater visibility are better positioned to handle all kinds of disruption and building a more resilient supply chain. Accenture refer to intelligent visibility. They say you don't have to have visibility of everything. You need to have visibility into particular product lines, customers or suppliers. I suppose this is a an application of the 80-20 rule. You, you concentrate on the 80% of value and they probably only represent some 20% of the items. So if you focus on the 20%, for example, using some kind of ABC analysis, I guess that's what they mean by this intelligent visibility. And they talk about structural visibility, which tells companies where their suppliers and points of manufacturing are, in other words, traceability issues that we've talked about earlier, where logistic routes are and uh, where particular goods are at any time in the supply chain. So it's having that sort of visibility that they're referring to. And then they talk about dynamic visibility, by which they mean seeing which products are across the supply chain and how plants and warehouses are running when there are disruptions happening. So monitor what's happening in those production plants and in the warehousing areas. And that gives you some kind of control, so Accenture say, over visibility in the supply chain. A report by Sky News this week showed Russian ships fully laden with grain from Ukraine sailing out of Crimea from Sebastopol through the Black Sea where they turned the trackers off into the Mediterranean and up the Bosphorus to Turkey, where they unloaded the grain. And according to Sky, it wasn't just one ship, but several ships that were taking this route and moving that grain. So it looks like a deliberate act of theft by Russia. Well, that's it for the News Roundup this week. I hope you've enjoyed the quick summary of what's been going on this week in supply chains. Join me again for the midweek edition. In the meantime, I'm signing off. I'm Tony Hines. You've been listening to Chain Reaction News Roundup. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.
You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.